because for a long time, I think people thought the state is going to solve my problems. And I think we're getting to a point now where people are thinking, well, civil society is going to solve my problems. But in truth, you are supposed to be the first person trying to solve your problems, even if they are massive. Um, take hands with your community, take hands with your neighbors and try and solve solve those issues. And yeah, I mean, that's really the, the best way to try and build a better South Africa, I'd say. How effective is legal activism? Well, joining me on the show is Daniel Eloff. He is an attorney with Hertespice Attorneys, and he is joining me on the show today to discuss public interest litigation, of which he has extensive experience, especially for somebody as young as himself. Daniel Eloff, welcome to the show. Thank you, David. It's lovely being here. So Daniel, you've had quite extensive experience with public interest litigation. Uh, you've been involved in a number of cases, specifically during the lockdown, and we'll talk about those in just a moment. But maybe let's start off with what drew you to the profession of law? What got you interested in becoming a legal practitioner? So I, I think I was rather lucky because when I was still in high school, I was sort of contemplating whether to go study politics or law. And I, I sort of had to, you know, try and figure out which one to go with. And in the end of the day, I, I thought that I can always enter politics while having a law degree, but I would not be able to sort of join the law legal fraternity uh, if I have a political degree. So um, that sort of that got me into the law and I started studying law. But I was rather fortunate to be able to start my legal career at a firm that's already, you know, involved in civil rights litigation and public interest litigation. I mean, uh, you really only have a handful of firms in the entire country that do this type of work. And I was very fortunate to start at a firm and do my uh, articles of clerkship at a firm that was already, you know, busy doing this this type of litigation. So um, I, I'd like to believe there's, uh, you know, a bigger hand over this entire process. And yeah, I've been really great, uh, you know, fortunate, and I'm grateful that this is sort of the path that that's led me here. And I, I think I am quite lucky to, at this young age, already be involved in these type of cases. I, I you know, a lot of times these are the sort of cases which go to the constitutional court, which not a lot of uh, litigators get to actually, you know, experience the constitutional court, let alone doing that on, you know, a frequent basis as, as we do at our firm. Oh, well, that's the opposite story to me, because I was originally registered for an LLB at UCT and went down and after my first year of humanities studies, I said to my parents, no, this is the kind of stuff that I want to do. Ended up doing my master's in politics. So, uh, but here we are. All right. Well, for those people who may not be legal wonks, such as yourself, what, what do we mean by this concept of public interest litigation? How is that different from normal commercial litigation, for example? Litigation. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good question. I actually did a, a postgraduate uh, course at, at uh, WITS a couple of years ago regarding public interest litigation. And um, I, I've, I've sort of grappled with what exactly it, it is, because if you look at the academic literature, public interest litigation has sort of been dominated as, I, I don't want to call it a left-wing tool, but, you know, it's rather been focused on, it's been utilized by th sort of left-wing causes, you know, in the 1960s and 70s in the United States you saw a lot of advocacy groups use public interest litigation for civil rights movements, equality movements, etc. So traditionally, it's really been, you know, used as a political tool on the left. 
although I think in recent years, at least in the last decade and maybe decade and a half, it, it really has been, you know, st- a lot of more sort of conservative and liberty, libertarian minded organizations have started using public interest litigation to achieve their political goals. Um, I mean, in one way, you could probably describe public interest litigation as um, a sort of, you know, political lawfare, although I tend to feel it's, you know, where it's just another forum, and I've mentioned this on, on previous interviews, and I think also uh, previously to you, is that a court case is just another forum for the battle of ideas. You know, it's just another battleground where you fight this battle of ideas. And for a long time, only one side was fighting on this battleground. And now you sort of have more parties involved. So I, I do view it as a positive thing. I don't believe uh, in South Africa, we we are we're not really a litigious country, uh, generally speaking, at least compared to the States. But I do believe we we do try and resolve conflicts through our courts, right? We we that's why our court roles are so overburdened and so busy is because people do revert to the courts to try and settle disputes, um, and I I see that as a positive thing. You know, it's it's a civilized way of trying to resolve disputes. Uh, you know, I mean the the opposite of of going to courts I think is much worse than trying to resolve your your issues in in a courtroom with you know robes and the civility of of court decorum. Um, so perhaps getting back to sort of your initial question on, on public interest litigation, I would say that basically it's litigating on behalf of various interest groups and trying to protect their particular rights or at least their interpretation of, of their rights. And that's what it boils down to in the end of the day. Yeah, in some ways, it's a bit of a misnomer to call it public interest because there is no such thing as the public interest. There are many interests, plural, yes. and they're competing for each other. And that is the nature of of power and the contestation for political power as well. Also, yes. uh, but I do think that the courts are a very critical arena in which to defend people's rights against the might of the state or another actor that might be infringing on their rights. And so I think that that is, is really a, a critical space that you're operating in. Uh, which brings yes. me to my next question, which is, I mentioned your involvement in many of the areas of litigation around the lockdown. And uh, that was a particularly uh, unprecedented encroachment by the state on the rights and liberties of, of individuals. Obviously, it was a period of high degrees of uncertainty, particularly in the initial phase of the pandemic. Um, but, you know, as uh, the, the crisis kind of continued, we saw some quite aberrant interventions by the state that really had nothing to do with public health. Um, so could you explain some of the, the major cases that you were involved in and some of the some of the battles that you fought. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to sort of. I feel the list is is endless. Um, I mean, in lockdown for two years, we were really extremely busy. Um, we we where most businesses were, you know, locked down for a prolonged time. We sort of got back after the three week initial hard lockdown. We were busy working because of you know just the the nature of our clients um, really compelled us to do so. Um, I mean, one of the first lockdown cases that we had was a group of South Africans who were quarantined in a quarantine camp in um, Limpopo, and they were kept in the, these horrible conditions, weren't allowed you know, any, to receive any medical treatment or packages from family members or food from family members. So we had to go to court urgently to assist them, and we were successful with that. Which was obviously which emboldened us. We thought, okay, well, great, you know, the courts are, you know, they're also scared about this lockdown thing. And initially, we saw a couple of successes with lockdown litigation cases, not just at our firm itself, but you know, all over South Africa. 
Um, we had that case, which was successful. We had another case on behalf of SAI, which is an agricultural network. And um, they assisted a bunch of farmers who wanted to export livestock and they weren't allowed to do so. And we were successful on their behalf. There was another case on behalf of the school support center to reopen um, creches and preschools during the lockdown, which was also successful. So we sort of initially saw a bunch of success. And then there sort of came a dip towards the end of 2020, where a lot of these cases weren't successful. That's where we saw um, a bunch of people challenging the extension of the state of disaster, not succeeding. We um, saw a bunch of the cases regarding the regulations themselves, like the, the, the restrictions on movement, restriction on different sales of alcohol and tobacco, whatever, which weren't successful. And I've sort of tried to figure out why this was, why, you know, sort of only later in the year did we see this. And my theory is, well, we the death toll really started to rise later in the year. And, you know, judges are people and they have family members and they also read, you know, the papers. And we started seeing the real effect of COVID on a bunch of people. And that sort of made them more hesitant to jump in and just tell the state, no, well, you're not allowed to do this. And that sort of continued for a while. And then later on, we we started seeing a bit more of a balance on, on some of these judgments where the really obvious draconian measures were struck down, like the tobacco ban, um, while others weren't successful. And um, towards the tail end of this litigation, I also think the state got better at litigating. I think initially they were just completely overwhelmed. Um, and later on, they sort of learned which fights to pick and which not to to go, uh, you know, to, to oppose in the end of the day. And uh, interestingly, the, the uh, IRR did a prior request to the Department of Justice and Constitutional Development, asking them for a list of all the lockdown cases that they defended. And in a bunch of them, they just simply didn't do anything. They didn't appoint advocates. They just said, oh, well, whatever the court decides, we'll be fine with that. But then there are certain ones where you can really see the state felt this is important. Then they, you know, went guns blazing, appointed one or two or three advocates on their cases. Um, so, yeah, I mean, from, from our firm side, the cases that we were involved in, literally from that quarantine camp, the, the case, the the um, case about the livestock, we did, we were involved in the tobacco case, we were involved in some of the liquor cases. Um, we were involved in the beach case, which we, in the middle of the holidays, tried to get uh, the state to to allow people to go on the beaches, and we weren't successful. And then everyone just ended up in the malls, which uh, is still to today very strange to me. I I still I'm baffled that we weren't successful with that case, to be honest. So yeah, I mean, we we really did uh, an entire litany of different lockdown litigation cases, and I'm very grateful that now sort of two, two and a half years afterwards, I can start doing other public interest cases and not just focus on all these lockdown cases. I think it is an interesting example of that tension between the government and society and civil society actors, particularly NGOs that act on behalf of particular causes. And there is that tension. You know, me, myself and my colleagues often speak about the balance of forces theory. And often that involves the state advancing a particular policy or agenda, putting that on the table until it meets some kind of resistance. And uh, it's important that you have organizations like the ones you represent forming that resistance. Uh, that, that is the, the process of democracy. Democracy is not only about the peaceful transfer 
of power at the ballot box. It's also about the day-to-day -day contestation of power uh, in the public square. All right, so uh, could you also speak to your role as an attorney? Because obviously you're working with advocates who are briefed by you. Um, what is your role there? Are you just purely playing a supporting role? And how much are you getting involved in the actual strategic development of the positions of your clients as well? Yes, it's it's also an interesting question. And in a way, it's a bit difficult for me to to sort of compare myself to others because I simply don't know. I haven't worked at another law firm, so I don't know how they do it. I sort of just know how how we do it at at, at this piece. And I mean, we are very much hands-on involved in in the actual litigation and the strategy. So yes, we brief counsel to attend to a lot of these matters. I do a lot of appearances myself, uh, which I was only able to do three years after being admitted as, as an attorney. Then I only got high court right of appearance. But so I do enjoy doing that as well. But we we do brief counsel in a lot of these cases, particularly cases which are rather high profile and you need a very senior advocate or advocates on, on the case. So sort of our role would be we we are, we have I mean I have weekly meetings with with my clients and we discuss various of these matters and they have campaigns and they have certain issues and hot button topics that they want to touch and then they come to us and they say well what can we do about this which is a bit strange compared to the normal attorney client relationship when you know if it's for example commercial litigation or litigation on behalf of an individual. Usually when it's, you know, normal, I would say 95% of, of attorney-client relationships work like this. The client comes to you, they say, listen, uh, you know, this uh, th this company owes us money or this company breached the contract. And, and you know, you sort of already, they come to you with not the solution, but the, the solution is more clear, right? Where here a, a client would come and say, well, this is a political problem. How do we sort of approach this from a legal point of view? And often it's it's not, you know, you don't have any legal remedies at your disposal. Often you can't really get involved, legally speaking, in, in a campaign. And then it's just purely a campaign for, for your client. But, um, I mean, most of the time you try to find some sort of legal remedy. You discuss it, you debate it with your client. And then you also, at least my role in my practice is like that, is you sort of inform the client well yes there is something to try and pursue here or not um and so so it's sort of a first filter that that you have your client has a bunch of ideas and you tell them well these ones are realistic and you can actually litigate on them and then from there usually the sort of the first initial correspondence that you send um it just comes from our office and then you sort of when when you actually get to the point where now you have to go to court then then you usually brief brief an advocate and you you get involved with them so um in a way you know attorneys are known for doing the admin work sort of they're the contact between the client and they do the paperwork and that's true and in our instance as well but we do a lot of the strategy work as well and i mean there are a lot of court pro or not court processes but legal processes which aren't bound to the court i mean for example a request for access to information which we do dozens of at at the same time uh, th those are processes where you don't brief counsel i mean you run with it and you go through the entire process because it's not a court process um so there's a lot of work sort of the paperwork and grant work that you do before you actually get to the point where where you can litigate and and go to court so public interest lawyers i would say it, it, your relationship does differ quite a lot uh, with your client compared to, you know, normal commercial type of work. But I 
quite enjoy that because so I would say my practice is about probably 75% is public interest litigation work for, you know, clients like AFI Forum, uh, DSA, Solidarity, SAI, uh, Action Society, all these type of clients. But then the other 25% uh, of my litigation work is just, you know, normal clients, businesses, individuals. And I think I appreciate the other 25% a lot more because I, I the majority of the work is sort of really my passion and the work that I really enjoy. So I enjoy the, the you know, the change of scenery while doing the other work where I think if, if it were the other way around, I would have, I, I would have perhaps not enjoyed the, you know, normal work as much as I do at this point. And what matters are you involved in at the moment that might be of interest to our audience? So at the moment, we, we haven't actually recently been in court with any of these public interest cases. Uh, the, the last one we were involved in, and we're back in court early in November, is a case on behalf of Sunfield um, Home, which is an old age home uh, in, in Pumalanga. And they have had this situation where the Department of Social Development haven't been, pay well, they haven't been paying them increases for subsidies for all the people that are staying there on the states, uh, sort of the state have placed them there for, for you know, that they're in a safe environment and for like the past 20 years the department hasn't raised their uh, subsidies at all and then at one point they threatened to take away all of the subsidies so we went to court to compel them to continue paying the subsidies while we then sort of negotiate regarding the increases so that's one recent case that we're involved in we're also at the moment involved in a case uh, on behalf of solidarity the trade union against the department of health the Department of Health have decided to appoint a bunch of um, senior management employees for the National Health Insurance, which is quite peculiar because the NHI is not law yet. I mean, Parliament still needs to vote on the bill, but they're appointing people to work for, for the NHI. So it is a bit of a strange situation. And that case will be in court also early November on the 8th of November. Um, and sort of other cases that we're in the middle of is we're still in the middle of a case we got to interdict against the south african government to they've been donating money to the government of cuba which we then got an interdict restraining them from paying a further 50 million to the cuban government and that decision is now being reviewed and we're sort of in the middle we're in the middle of that process at the moment um perhaps another interesting case that i might mention is we we're busy on behalf of sai um we we'd had a request for access to information sent to the Minister of um, Agricultural Rural Development, uh, to request a list of all the um, land claims that they have. Because the minister, you know, goes to parliament and, you know, gives all these speeches saying, we have X amount of, of land claims, but it fluctuates, it goes, it goes up and down, which is also quite weird. Uh, so we just asked, well, give us your list of all, all land claims. And they just refused, they didn't do anything. We went through an internal appeal process. They just refused to give anything, didn't respond to us. We went to court, didn't respond, got our court order, didn't respond. Only when we threatened with contempt of court proceedings against the minister, they finally you know, started doing something when they were being threatened with being locked up. Um, so that's sort of an ongoing case that we're busy with at, at the moment as well. And it's, it's a rather important case because the land issue in South Africa is a sensitive issue and we believe that it's it's sort of being used as a political toy uh, in a sense and it's really important that South Africans know well this is the this is the amount of land claims that exist and they need to be you know worked through and we know how um completely and utterly useless government's been with the entire land reform process 
And now they're pushing ahead with, uh, you know, the EWC bill and a bunch of other nonsense, while they haven't even sorted out a process that started 20 years ago. So it is a rather crucial case to just, you know, agree on which land claims have actually been lodged or not. And do you think that there is potential for future public interest litigation around EWC? We now have the EWC bill before the National Council of Provinces. The Land Courts bill has also gone through the National Assembly. Uh, so, I mean, my understanding from the Glenister judgment all those years ago is that it's only until the bill is passed into law that you can challenge it constitutionally. Uh, but is there any prospect, do you think, of some sort of challenge like that in the future? Probably. Well, I would not advise anyone to go to court prior to the bill actually being signed into law. It just, it just wouldn't make sense. You can't get an interdict stopping government from legislating. Um, but I mean, definitely, I know a bunch of organizations will litigate the moment the bill is actually passed. And, and we're probably going to see two types of cases. We'll probably see early cases of organizations going to court regarding constitutionality of, of the bill, saying, well, it's unconstitutional and, and it should therefore um, you know, be, be declared unconstitutional and sent back to, to parliament. Although I'm, I'm, quite, I'm quite worried that that would be the approach because my concern is that the court will say, well, no, it's not unconstitutional and we haven't seen any unconstitutional you know, sort of um, consequences of the bill, which would set a bad precedent. And then I think we're going to see a second wave of cases where people's property is actually expropriated, likely under dubious circumstances. And my concern is then that those cases are, you know, jeopardized by the initial cases, which were almost academic in nature, right? And because it's going to be a rather academic question initially, it's only really going to become a live legal question the moment government uses its new powers in terms of the act to expropriate without conversation, where the courts then have to grapple with you know, the consequences of, of this legislation. So I think it's going to be interesting. I, I'm not as um, completely pessimistic as a lot of people regarding the bill. I think the bill in its entirety is horrible, but our courts generally tend to you know put the brakes on on a lot of things and i think that's what's going to happen with this bill so yes although the bill doesn't refer specifically to land it refers to all property i think what's going to end up happening is our courts will only interpret it as meaning land um and there's no guarantee we, that they will no no not at all i mean i i can be completely wrong i just i think i'm optimistic and i hope that's not what's going to happen but i mean the the point is the danger is that it's it doesn't read that way right the danger of the bill is it says property. It doesn't say just land. Um, and, and when you tie this with something like the prescribed assets uh, debate that we've had for a couple of years now, the government could say the same. They could say, well, okay, you have a bunch of savings. We're just going to expropriate that on the public good. Or they're going to say that about cars or you know big company assets or whatever. So the danger is there. I just think on sort of my view of the judiciary at the moment is that's likely how they'll interpret it, um, I suspect. I'm, I'm not sure, but I do suspect that's probably what they'll what they'll do. So, Daniel, I don't want you to impugn the integrity of the judiciary. But what do you think is the state of the judicial system at the moment? I mean, it's yes, it's it's such a big question, and I, I think my my concern, my personal view is, our courts are good when it comes to questions which aren't sort of ideological or political in nature, right? They 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 
it's just an equitable when it comes to sort of commercial matters or when it comes to, you know, everyday type of things. My concern comes in when it's, you know, very heavy political type of flavor to a case. And I I have a concern that with those cases, it, it, they do tend to get rather partisan or at least ideological. Um, and I mean, it's probably not surprising. I mean, I, I mentioned this uh, earlier this year at a meeting at, at my alma mater, but a law faculty tends to sort of be at the forefront of these ideological battles and usually very much progressive and ahead of the rest of the university. Um, you know, sort of postmodernist thinking, critical studies sort of first really take root at the law faculty. And then it sort of, you know, gradually moves over to to all the other faculties, probably the humanities faculty and the law faculty. It starts there. Um, but but I think I tend to think law faculties even more than humanities fac uh, faculties, and I think the same happens with our courts in, in a way because the, the same you know students of a couple of years ago who were at these universities being taught um, all of these critical studies end up becoming attorneys and judges and and advocates. Um, so I, I do think our courts we we don't in South Africa have this very partisan split between you know clearly conservative judges and clearly progressive progressive judges in south africa we i tend to think the most the majority of of um the judiciary really is part of the same broad political grouping you obviously have strange anomalies like our former chief justice who's now recently started his own political party where where he has sort of these schizophrenic views on a couple of things he's you know this fundamental christian um, but then he, on the other hand, he really does have a lot of progressive views, which is perhaps in some sort of political spectrums a bit bizarre, but um, potentially not. Um, it probably depends on how you view the world. So, so uh, Daniel, do you think he's actually allowed to run for public office given his previous role as yes, Chief Justice? I, it's interesting because uh, he, it, it, the, if you read, the, read sort of the law black and white, then no, he's not. Um I guess the question just becomes if he's willing to give up his sort of, um, you know, the 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 perks of being a retired judge. If he's able, you know, to repudiate those perks and say, well, I, I don't, I no longer want it. Whether he'll be permitted to, to do so. I mean, I should perhaps just point out that it's not the first time that we have a judge, although I think it's the first time we have a chief justice going to, to a political party, but it's not the first time that we'll have a judge in South African history that after sitting on the bench goes to and enters politics. It happened before. It happened, uh, I think, in, in the 1920s and it happened in the 70s. So um, it, it's not strange. Um, I think the strange thing here is it's an actual chief justice and it's sort of the you know new constitutional dispensation i i think it would be a flippin' interesting court case regarding his personal limitation of rights whether it's justifiable in an open and democratic and constitutional country to limit the rights of a former judge to form a political party or to be part of a political party i mean i i i think yeah, that would be a flippant interesting case, and I'd love to get involved with that if it if it ever gets to to that point. Although I, I'm still, I, I think we still should see how is, this is going to play out. I think it's sort of going to be a case where he's you know, going to be the honorary chairperson of the political party, but not really involved, you know, trying to walk this precarious line, <laughs> try and justify his involvement. <laughs> so yeah, I think it's going to be interesting. Well, what about judicial appointments? Because we have the Judicial Services Committee or Commission. Uh, which is staffed mostly by politicians. Uh, 
national members of parliament, members of the provincial legislatures, uh, and also the executive has some say that there's the uh, the profession is also represented, the bar, the academia, but they seem to be outgunned by politicians. Do you think it's appropriate for us to give so much power to politicians to make judicial appointments? Yes, well, I guess the question is what, what the alternative is, right? I mean, in the States, you have governors appointing state uh, judges and you have the president appointing federal judges, which perhaps there you could argue it's even worse because you just have one individual doing it, one politician. Mm. But I mean, it, in South Africa, it really does. I, I think it is a massive issue. You know, we love to say we have this very clear separation of powers, but do we really, right? Do we, you know, we have national elections. They, they, we vote for members of parliament. They determine who the executive. So the same people, you know, one election determines the executive, and the very same parliament, you know, in the end of the day, appoints judges. So mm-hmm. how separate is it really? Um, and I mean, that's why. I, if, if you actually go and look into a lot of the, you know, the background and histories of our judges, it won't be surprising to see a bunch of judges who 20 years ago were mayors of municipalities or, you know, heads of different state institutions or whatever. I mean, it it does happen. That's sort of, it, it it's common practice in South Africa. And obviously, if, if they've been in political positions, they have a particular political affiliation which at least in theory they've now had to you know again uh, you know uh, put a distance between them and and their formal former affiliations but i mean in reality you know if you if you it's the same with a sports team if you're you know once a gunner always a gunner type of thing right are you really going to just uh, uh, never um, walk alone yeah <laughs> yes never walk That's alone exactly right it's sort of in it's part of you so unless you really left the party on on bad terms you're still you know going to be rather um not necessarily biased but you're going to be in support of that party and its policies and we still have a situation where the ANC still are the national party and is still the national party in power at this point and a lot of these judges you know were formerly uh, affiliated with the ANC so as yeah perhaps to get your question I think there's a lot of work to be done with reform on how we appoint our judges i for example think a very proper and and simple solution to um just get a bit more of decentralization a bit more of distance between the politicians at least on a national level and judges would be well allow each province to appoint their own judges for their divisions right that would make a lot of sense at least it already decentralizes power um but you know i think that's way too federalist for for our current national government to to even consider. Well, I'm a big fan of federalism and devolution, so I'll so- certainly uh, support that that initiative. And you know, you mentioned uh, you know the the various regional courts. I mean, the Western Cape High Court has been really rocked by a controversy uh, with John Clope and lots of allegations flying around there, which I really don't think uh, looks very good for the profession in that part of the country. Yes, I mean, and and now you sort of, again, you have this tension between a provincial government that really wants to push its agenda. And there have really been cases in the Western Cape High Court where you can clearly see that agenda of the DA government in the Western Cape being sort of blocked, um, which again, it's expected when, when you have a politicized bench, you're going to have sort of these politicized outcomes. Um, so, so, I mean, the, yes, the Western Cape is a, a good example of it. And, and the, the problem is, 
you know, judges can be shipped to the Western Cape because it's sort of on a, it's determined on a national level, right? Had it been the case where the Western Cape had more autonomy or every province had more autonomy to pick their, you know, preferred judges, I think it changes the picture. I mean, it doesn't solve all problems, right? It doesn't take the politics out of it, but it, it like you says, it devolves power. And I think in the end of the day, it's a step in the right direction. Do you think it's possible to have a completely depoliticized judicial system? I, I don't think so personally. I, I mean, I always use the example that it's a person sitting there, you know, on the bench. It's it's um, in the law, we're, we're taught about this, you know, this objective learned judge sitting on the bench, you know, who's impartial and unbiased and just looks at the facts. But I mean, the point is, he's a person, he or she's a person, the person's flawed, the person has the, you know, own biases. And I think it's it's rather difficult. And probably that's why in South Africa, we have the situation where it, when, when it comes to court cases which aren't politicized, we, we get decent judgments and it's fair and it's equitable. But the moment it becomes politicized, um, it's, yeah, it, 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 it's not as, you know, unbiased and, and impartial. But I guess the, the point is it's likely like that all over the world. I mean, I... I how else do you get judges who, you know, remain completely neutral, uninvolved in politics, don't read the news, aren't concerned about what government does? I, it, to me, it's certain it sort of seems impossible to to achieve that. I don't know if I don't know if you think it's possible to achieve an impartial bench. Well, I think it's important that if there is some perception of a conflict of interest, that that is declared, and that's incumbent on the judges to do that. Um, you know, so your example of a judge acting as a mayor. Uh, I, I seem to recall reading somewhere that the judge on the recent uh, Kill the Boer case that, uh, with Afroforum against Malema, that he actually served as a mayor of, of some rural municipality once. I would think that that would uh, preclude him from uh, you know, a case like this, so politicized. Um, but you know, I think to your earlier point, judges, they are operating within uh, an ideological milieu. Uh, they are uh, you know, often in South Africa, we'll see reference to transformation, and the imperatives therein, uh, but there's no mention of transformation in the constitution. Uh, that's what Chris Malan, I think his name is, I would refer to as transformania. There's this kind of political force uh, that has basically made that a kind of a political norm or a cultural norm in the country. Um, and judges are kind of operating within that, that context. Yeah, I mean, Professor Malan, I, I, he actually makes this point, which is, I think, similar to the one I made earlier, where he says that our bench and judiciary, they're good on certain issues, but it's just so that they do that so that there's a wiggle room to sort of make these other atrocious judgments. He is a bit more pessimistic than I am. But um, so, so, yeah, I mean, he he quite actively says that um, they, they, they'll give on the sort of bit easier issues so that there's yeah they can they can achieve what they want but i mean even even with uh, for example one of my the cases that i really really despise a constitutional court judgment is the public protector case where the court basically it was in that entire debacle about tuli madonzela's report regarding kandla where uh, she said well my my report is is binding my findings are binding and zuma must pay back the money and uh, they went to court, went all the way to constitutional court, and the constitutional court said, yes, well, we agree. We're going to extend the powers of the public protector to make their findings binding. Now, a lot of people at the time praised that. They're like, yeah, it's great, awesome. Now, to, you know, the public protector can do this. 
but little that they just think, you know, literally a year in advance when Tuli Maranzella's term came to an end, that we, we're not going to have a Tuli Maranzella forever. And now you have the situation where public protector has these expanded powers, much to, yeah, I think, you know, the big regret of Saru Ramaphosa at the moment. But, um, and mm -hmm. and so it, it often happens where even cases where the majority of South Africa feels this is a good case or a good judgment, that when you actually just think about the practicalities and the consequences of the judgment, they aren't good. Um, but but at least with those cases, you can argue they just they got it wrong, right? They, it, it's not because of politics um, that they they got it wrong. I I don't know why they got it wrong. To be honest, it, it's quite strange to I me. Mean, I think the the sort of the the zeitgeist at the time was just you know so anti-Zuma. The entire country, you know, we had these big marches against Zuma, and I just think the sort of the tide was, they were just riding the momentum. Um, but yeah, to this day, I don't know why they made that silly judgment. Well, I think it's a good lesson because even if your team is winning in terms of the outcome of that judgment, you might create unintended consequences in the system that might come back to bite you. And it's one of the criticisms of the constitution itself that it was yes. designed for a Mandela, but what yes. we got was a Jacob Zuma. Um, yes. And you know, I think another classic example of that is the appointment of the National Director of Public Prosecutions, who leads the National Prosecuting Authority. That's a presidential power. And during the Zuma years, you know, uh, he just appointed uh, somebody who was from quite, the sheep. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Exactly. So, uh, you know, you kind of need these checks and balances in the legal architecture. But I also think you need a, a political culture that values accountability, that stresses the importance of transparency. Um, yes. And that's what civil society organizations, such as the ones you represent, uh, are, are so good at achieving. So, yes. so Daniel, are you winning? Are, are you uh, <laughs> achieving what you are setting out to achieve? Do you think you're pushing back the tide against some yes, of well, I mean, state meddling? Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess the question is, what, what is success, right? Or, or what are your goals and what do you want to achieve? I mean, for, for example, so I was involved in the, like you mentioned earlier, the Kill the Boer case. And to, again, I mean, that, that's a horrible case to, to lose, especially when with these type of cases, you know, they're often difficult and often, you know, I, I always advise clients, you know, litigation is 50-50, but often in public interest litigation, the you know, it's more like, 40, 60 in, in the favor of the state, right? You, you aren't on equal footing because um, just of the nature of the cases that you're bringing. But um, there are cases where you just know, you know, this is going to be a tough case. And if we win, it's, you know, it's highly unlikely. Um, but you sort of go in with that expectation. So one of those cases was the Cuba case, right? The, the Cuba donation case, we from the start knew this was a difficult case. And I was a bit surprised when we were successful. I mean, we're obviously prepared to be successful, but you, you get a feeling, you know, sitting there in court, listening to the arguments, listening to what the judge says, you get a feeling of which direction the case is going. And with the Malema case, I was really under the impression that we'll be successful at least in the most biggest part of what we were seeking. And I think perhaps I was blind because I was, I just thought, you know, the average South African, the ordinary South African looks at what or listens to what Malema says and thinks, well, this is despicable. Um, so I was a bit surprised with that case. So, but, but now, so getting to your question about are we winning and are we being successful? I think a question it's, is what, what exactly do you want to achieve? I can give a good example of this. Um, although I wasn't involved in the litigation itself at that point. But 
AfriForum were involved in a bunch of um, language cases at universities for a couple of years, basically starting here at around 2010, 2011, where there was a, obviously a lot of pressure at, at universities, it's particularly the, the sort of traditional old Afrikaans universities, you know, UP, the Northwest University, Stellenbosch, um, those places. Although at that point, UJ already completely, um, uh, uh, you know, changed its, its language policy. So AfriForum was involved in a lot of these cases. And um, the, the point of the litigation at that point, you so, they sort of knew that they're fighting a losing battle, right? In in the end of the day, the, the universities are probably moving in the direction of just having one language of teaching and learning being English. But the goal of the litigation was to stall that process as far as possible for two reasons. The one, to potentially create room for this not to just be a battle between Afrikaans and English, but for it to become a battle of mother tongue education where there are viable other languages at tertiary level where universities can actually adopt those as, as a language of teaching and learning, which we've now seen at, for example, the University of KwaZulu-Natal at UKZN. Um, so, so that was the one goal. And then the second goal was for them is to buy more time to ensure that there are alternatives. And now, 10 years later, they've founded or through their sort of sister organizations, we have academia, where Afrikaans is the language of teaching and learning. So in that sense, I mean, they lost a lot of those cases, right? They lost the case against the University of the Free State in part. Um uh, uh, they won the one against UNISA, uh, coincidentally, but the Stellenbosch fight is sort of still ongoing. And I mean, you suffer a lot of defeats, but the goal isn't necessarily winning the court case. There's sort of a broader goal goal to achieve. And I think if you ask yourself that question, then I would definitely say yes. I think I think a lot of our clients are winning. I think they they're achieving what they want to achieve. Um, they are making South Africa a better place. And I think they are sort of state-proofing communities and, and individuals all over South Africa and protecting them. I think the decay would have been much faster had it not been for all these wonderful organizations, uh, you know, putting up a, a really formidable fight. Yeah, and I think it's very important to engage in those court battles, but not to stake everything on those fights, right? So like you say, uh, you're busy building alternative structures, uh, new community-based security initiatives, you know, to prevent farm attacks, for example. But, you know, you're also saying, well, let's try and stop this uh, this hideously violent song from being sung as well. Yeah. And, you know, so I think there, there's kind of multiple, uh, you know, arrows in your in your quiver. Um, and, you know, you, you use different ones for, for different purposes. I've often had the guys from Sakelika on the show. And one of the strategies that they're also developing is alternative dispute resolution. You know, actually de-linking that reliance on the public court system and, you know, coming up with ways in which to settle commercial disputes. Um, so, you know, I think that that's also an interesting example of the state proofing of insulating yourself yeah. away from some of these more damaging policies. Yes. I mean, so so I know Sarkalikha's attorneys quite well, and they really are very shrewd uh, and good litigators. Um, they pick their battles very specifically and they're very good when they take on those cases. I mean, they've had great success in, in the past couple of years. I mean, the triple PFA case is a major win against uh, sort of racialized employment in, in public procurement. Um, 
And, but like you said, so on the side, they're doing all these other things. And um, what's interesting about that is in a way, they're also, Sarkalicha's catching a wave because even before Sarkalicha started pushing for this alternative dispute resolution platform of theirs, um, we started seeing commercial entities putting in arbitration clauses in their contracts because our courts got bugged down, bugged down, bugged down. Uh, the admin, you know, they were getting behind on admin. So they they started working that in. So you sort of see, you know, people adapting. Um, it, it's similar to how you now see, uh, uh, you know, long-term lease agreements of, of property or land or farms containing clauses regarding EWC, you know, sort of in a way, the law does preempt what what might come. And uh, so the alternative dispute resolution uh, really did sort of gain a lot of ground in the last 10 years. And we saw a lot of people rather going going that route. And, and this actually, it ties in into one of the points I, I thought we could perhaps potentially discuss, but it was sort of more suitable at the beginning of the conversation, but I think is a good point to raise it now, is a lot of public interest litigation is sort of inadvertent, right? It's it's not, you know, it's not necessarily a, a big civil rights organization who goes to court. A lot of these issues sort of pop up through normal litigation. Um, so, for, for example, a, a, there was a recent case in the Eastern Cape where Intercape bus services, you know, these long uh, distance bus services, they took the Minister of Police and Transport and the MECs for Transport and Police in uh, the Eastern Cape to court saying, you can't keep our buses safe on your own roads and you're supp- you, you should be held accountable. Now, I mean, that's not a commercial dispute at all, but it is a private entity, you know, just, you know, uh, um, deciding, screw this, we're going to push through this litigation, we're going to hold government accountable. Another interesting case that we are hopefully getting involved in quite soon is there's a farmer in in um, Pumalanga where uh, he has labor tenants on his, or people who want to be labor t- tenants on his um, his farm, and they've wanted to get uh, various, you know, labor tenant rights. And the Human Rights Commission came, did an investigation, and they also uh, submitted a report. And they said to the farmer, well, this report is binding on you. And he said, well, no, the Human Rights Commission reports aren't binding. So they went to court regarding the functions and powers of the Human Rights Commission, similar to the Tuli Maranzela case. Um, so here you just, you know, have an average Joe farmer in Pumalanga, in the Pumalanga High Court, fighting this very important constitutional question. So a lot of public interest litigation, you know, doesn't really start out as public interest litigation. It's not the purpose of it. And, and nor are they sort of, you know, they're not these heroes with their capes on already. They sort of only get their capes later on <laughs> and, and sort of unexpectedly. Um, so, yeah, and, and I think this, uh, it, 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 gets back to the point you made earlier about alternative dispute resolution a a lot of these issues of sort of state proofing happened without you know the active uh, push for it for it to happen you know it's it's the same as businesses becoming self-reliant getting their own power getting their own water getting their own uh, security services um and i mean that's good that's what you you want to see you want to see people being proactive and solving issues in their communities and in their sort of direct um, areas where they're involved in. So Daniel, as we bring this conversation to a close, I would like to give you the opportunity to speak to that ordinary Joe who might be listening to this show and convey the importance of the law as an instrument for social change, because I think many people perhaps a bit despondent about where South Africa is at the moment, but there is power that, that individuals can exercise. 
Yes, I mean, it, it's true. And litigation is expensive, right? That's usually people's first sort of experience with the laws. They're like, well, they can't afford this. But firstly, I'd say, well, there are a lot of organizations that are willing to help. They can't obviously help with every single small dispute that has, doesn't have a broad in, broader issue at heart. But they can help with a lot of these things, particularly if you're really a marginalized party being affected by state decisions. There are a lot of organizations, wonderful organizations all over the political spectrum who who can assist you with that legal um the, the legal issues. But then also a lot of these issues can be solved sort of outside of court, right? Um I, I mean I, I always encourage people participate in public participation uh, campaigns. You know, let your voice be heard. Uh you know um hassle your your um your, your local counselor, your ward counselor, make noise, write emails, you know, get involved, right? It's, it's, these issues aren't just going to be solved by, you know, sitting back and waiting for, you know, the big civil rights organizations to do it. Um, if, if you have an issue in your street, tackle it. Um, I, I, I really think we, we need to, we need to learn to that, that, because for a long time, I think people thought the state's going to solve my problems. And I think we're getting to a point now where people are thinking, well, civil society is going to solve my problems. But in truth, you are supposed to be the first person trying to solve your problems, even if they are massive. Um, take hands with your community, take hands with your neighbors and try and solve solve those issues. And yeah, I mean, that's really the, the best way to try and build a better South Africa, I'd say. Daniel Eloff, thank you very much for joining me on the Solutions Podcast. Always a pleasure, David. If you enjoyed this conversation and you're watching on YouTube and you'd like to support this podcast, the best way you can do so is by hitting that like button and also subscribing to the channel. So if you enjoy this content, please do do that. If you're listening on your preferred podcast platform, please do subscribe there as well. My name is David Ansara. This is the Solutions Podcast. Until next time, take care.